Does that look like fun? Well, it was. So I'll just let you know that. We had a great time. Record attendance, as Luke was saying, we had about 600 men there. Just had a great time. Uh, I got to eat some of that buffalo. It was all I had was uh, just a little short rib, but it was that long and loaded with meat. And it was uh, very tasty. So had a great time doing that. So if you miss it, please, uh, please be be praying for our third service, especially uh, where we invited men to come back. And uh, I think most of them will come next service that, uh, that God will, will do something. And appreciate you being part of our church. And if you're here last, last night, I hope you had a great time doing it. We're in a series called Epic, and we're reminded of something, that the Bible is not filled with random, unrelated stories, but that it's all really just one story, God's story, God's epic saga through time. And last week, we talked about Abraham, and we talked about how the Bible starts off in in Genesis, universal in scope, But then it narrows down in Genesis 12 to one man, Abraham, and then his family, which will become a nation, and then all that will narrow down again to one man who will come as Messiah and die for our sins. So that's where all that goes. We left off with Abraham, and today I want to pick up a little bit with Jacob, but primarily with his son Joseph. So Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He ends up having 12 sons by four different women. And if that sounds a little messy as far as a family's concerned, it was. It was messy. But his favorite son, who we want to focus on, was the 11th son that he had. And his name was Joseph. But even though he was number 11, he was Jacob's favorite son because Joseph was born to Jacob's favorite wife. And so being a dysfunctional family as they were, Jacob loved Joseph more than the other kids and the other sons. And they all caught that. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 37, verse four, it says, his brothers saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brothers. So they hated him and couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So dysfunctional family, dad favors the 11th son, all the other older brothers resent it. Um, He then, to make matters worse, this uh, younger son, this Joseph, the 11th, he has a dream, and then he's excited to tell everybody about the dream, but not everybody's excited to hear about the dream, because the dream implies that all the older brothers are going to bow down to him one day, and even his parents. So, I mean, it was just kind of a deal where nobody likes these dreams, but Joseph, now, at this time, uh, they're shepherds, and they, uh, Abraham is a mass, and his clan is a mass, huge flocks, and so they're constantly looking for pasture, and uh, something happens when, when Joseph is about 17, Jacob, and, and he's at home, which there's the distinction, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his 10 older brothers who are with the herds a few days away. And so Joseph goes to check on the brothers, and the brothers see him coming in the distance. 
and they do not like Joseph. As a matter of fact, they say, oh, look over there. Look on the horizon. Here comes the dreamer. And they decide that they're going to take care of him so these dreams won't come true. And when he gets there, they, they jump him. They throw him into a dry cistern, a pit that he can't get out of. And as they're deciding, the ten brothers, what to do with Joseph, a caravan comes by that's heading down to Egypt, and it's a slave caravan. So they decide to sell their brother Joseph to the slave caravan, and then he, and he's off, and he's out of their lives forever, they think, as the caravan takes them. They're a little richer. They grab Joseph's coat. They dip it in some goat's blood. They take it back to Jacob and say, hey, dad, whose coat do you think this is? We found this. And then to make Jacob think that Joseph was killed by wild animals somewhere between them and between where, where Jacob was and where the brothers were. So that all happens. When Joseph gets down to Egypt, he ends up on the slave block and he has sold there. Kind of a wealthy man named Potiphar, he buys Joseph and takes him home, and Joseph starts working on his estate. But what Joseph does turns out very good, and, and this uh, owner, Potiphar, he starts promoting Joseph kind of up through the ranks. He's still a slave. But pretty soon, he basically lets Joseph, after years and years actually, he lets Joseph run everything. Joseph runs the entire estate, and the only thing that the Potiphar does is basically figure out what he wants to eat. Everything else taken care by Joseph. And so things are getting better for Joseph, but just about when that happened, Joseph catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. And she comes on to him. And Joseph's like, whoa, whoa, back off, lady. Cannot do this. Because, hey, uh, think about it. Your husband, he's put me in charge of everything. I mean, he, he entrusts everything with me, his entire estate. I, I'm the guy that runs it. He's, he's given me all this authority. He's basically, he hasn't withheld anything from me in the whole place except for you because you're his wife. And she doesn't take no for an answer very easily. And she keeps coming on to him. And one time in particular, there's no other men or male servants in the household, and Joseph is doing his, his daily tasks, and she confronts him. She kind of corners him and, again, wants him to sleep with her. He says, no, how could I sin against Potiphar and a sin against God? And he flees, but she's hanging on to him, and she ends up with his coat. Uh, so his, his garment, part of his garments, his outer garments. And so she starts then after he's gone, decides, okay, well, I'm going to use this. She starts screaming for help. People come in and she says that Joseph tried to rape her. So she falsely accuses Joseph. Potiphar gets home. He hears the story. He's furious. So he throws Joseph into prison. In prison, Joseph, become, he starts serving the warden there, and he actually, basically, after a few years, ends up as the warden's second-in-command, sort of the vice warden there, although he's still a slave and he's still a prisoner, but things are looking bleak because there's no way for him to get out unless Pharaoh did. Of course, he has no connection there. Then, one day while he's in prison, 
there's some rumors that there's trouble in the palace. And sure enough, two officials from Pharaoh's court get thrown into prison with Joseph. And they're there for a while. And Joseph gets to know them a little bit. And, but here's a connection. One day, Joseph comes in and he's interacting with them like, like every other day. And they're a little more bummed out than they normally are being in a dungeon in prison. And Joseph's like, well, what's wrong? And they both say, well, we both had dreams last night, different dreams. And they're kind of troubling. And Joseph says, well, I have a little experience with dreams. By the way, if you've had a dream, do not come and ask me anything about your dream after the services. You know, don't come and say, hey, Kevin, here's my dream. We don't do the dream thing around here. So anyway, so they tell Joseph, the, he, he talks to the cupbearer first. By the way, the two officials are the cupbearer, the royal chief cupbearer, and the chief baker. And I know you're probably thinking I'm going to say the candlestick maker next. But these positions, the cupbearer and the baker, are actually way more important than they sound because the easiest way to get rid of Pharaoh would be to poison him. And these are one of the most trusted people in the kingdom, his cupbearer and his baker, that ensure that doesn't happen. Very trusted, but like I say, something happened. So, they, the cupbearer tells Joseph the, his dream that he had last night, and Joseph says, well, hey, good news for you. You know what your dream means? In three days, you're going to be released from prison, and not only that, you're going to be restored to your former position of being the cupbearer of Pharaoh. And the chief baker hears that, and he's like, whoa, hey, well, what about me? What about me? I got my dream. And so he asks about his dream, and then Joseph goes, ah, oh, not so great. Uh, actually, in three days, you're going to be hanged, and birds are going to pluck at your face. You know, so not good. And so that kind of bummed him out. But then he has three days, but Joseph says to the cupbearer, hey, you're going to be back in Pharaoh's court. You know Pharaoh. You interact with him all the time. Hey, would you tell him that I was kidnapped, I wasn't a slave, I was sold into slavery, then I ended up and then I was falsely accused, I shouldn't be here in prison, put in a word for me. The guy says, yeah, okay. And he doesn't. Three days later, the guy's restored, Joseph's waiting, Joseph's waiting, a couple years go by, nothing, and Joseph's been forgotten again. When God's invisible, he's still there working. And some of you have been through something like that, where you've gone through suffering and hardships and you're just thinking, where's God? I mean, that's Joseph, right? He's betrayed by his brothers. If that wasn't bad enough, he's sold into slavery. If that wasn't bad enough, he's falsely accused. If that wasn't bad enough, he's thrown into prison. If that wasn't bad, bad enough, he has this one glimmer of hope. He meets this official and he does kind of a favor for him. Nothing, forgotten. When God is invisible, he's steer, still there. He's working for you, he's working for others, and he's working for his purposes. He's working for you. We know that from Joseph's life. This whole time, God's still working for Joseph. And as a matter of fact, as the story continues, we find out that all these bad things that have happened to Joseph, it's like they have all served to strategically put Joseph at a certain place in a certain time 
So big things can happen, and he becomes the number two man of the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt. When God is invisible, he's still there, not only working for you, he's working for others. I mean, God's working for us, we see that in Joseph. And, and by the way, if you're a Christian today, no matter what you're going through, what your difficulty, God is still working for, for you. As a matter of fact, we're told that in the New Testament, right? In Romans 8, 28, do you remember that? Where it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So I'm saying right now, if you're going through tough times, God's still there. If you can't see God, he's still there and he's still working for you, for your benefit, even though you can't see it. And if you're a believer, you're promised that. And so maybe it's, uh, you're, you're going through a, a, a super difficult time and, and God will, will somehow use that uh, to, to, make a good in your life. And we don't see how that happens, but we see it when we look back on our lives, how God has done that. Maybe if you're not a believer, you might be going through some rough circumstances and God may be just allowing that to happen in your life in order for you to see God. Because you, no matter what circumstance serves to bring us to God, where we come into relationship with God and get to spend eternity with him, then there's no thing we can go through that's too bad that won't be outweighed by that good. Do you know what I'm saying? So God's still there working for you, but God's still there working for others. In Joseph's life, it turns out because God strategically put him in this place that there was a lot of his suffering to get there. God did that. Well, Joseph ends up saving the entire nation of Egypt and his entire family clan all because he went through that stuff. God used that. God is still there, and he's working for you, he's working for others, and he's working through his purposes. And God still, we, we see how that's going through all through the Old Testament, where all these events are happening, but they all line up and serve to bring forth, which actually is the coming Messiah, it's all one story. God weaves that all together to make that happen. So, and he continues to work his purposes today. All right, back to the story. We're going to go back to the story. Joseph's in prison, right? Two years later, still in prison, forgotten, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And he somehow senses that these are more significant than any other dreams he's ever had. And so he calls in the administration and all of his wise men, and he gets them on. He says, hey, what does this mean? These are kind of freaky. I think they're really important. I think the whole nation might be affected. What do these dreams mean? And all the wise men and his administrative and all his officials say, I don't have a clue what do these dreams mean? And about that time, the cupbearer, who's there the whole time, goes, oh yeah, there was that guy. And so he goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, Pharaoh, don't be angry with me, but 
Uh, you know, a couple years ago when you were trouble in the palace and you threw me and, and the baker guy into prison, well, while we were there for a while, we actually had a couple of dreams. We each had a dream in one night, and the next morning there was a Hebrew slave in jail there, and he interpreted our dreams, and he said this would happen in three days, and in three days it happened exactly like the Hebrew slave said they would happen. And so Pharaoh's like, well, I don't have any other explanation, so hey, go get this guy. So they go get Joseph, and they, they clean him up because he's in, in the prison, and they make him presentable, shave him up, and, and they bring him before Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh shares the two dreams. And Joseph responds, he says, hey, these two dreams, they mean the same thing. And the reason there's two of them is God's saying, this is going to happen for sure, and it's going to happen soon. And he basically says, what's going to happen, Pharaoh, is there are going to be seven years of abundance. There's going to be seven years where in all of Egypt, which is kind of the grain bread basket of the ancient world, on both sides of the flooded Nile. He says, and for seven years, it's bumper crops, it's abundance, it's everything's gonna be great, crops like we've never seen before. But seven years after that, there's gonna be, a, a, after that, those seven years, there's seven years of famine. And the famine is gonna be so devastating that nobody will ever remember the good years that preceded it. So that's what Joseph tells Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says, before even Pharaoh says anything, Joseph then throws in kind of an executive outline of what Pharaoh could do to get ready for those seven devastating years of famine. And so Pharaoh hears that. He likes the plan. He likes the interpretation, likes the plan. And then he says in front of his officials, and he says, well, who better to run this show than this guy who told us what all this meant and actually has a plan on how we can all survive this? So then Pharaoh, unprecedented, takes off his signet ring and gives it to Joseph, this slave that was in a dungeon the day before, and he makes him the vice regent of all of Egypt. He says, hey, only you, you nothing will happen in Egypt, Egypt without your permission. The only one higher than you is me. Everybody's going to come to you for everything. Do what Joseph says during these next 14 years. And so it happens that way. Joseph starts putting his plan into effect, which, which involves uh, getting, uh, taking some of the bumper crop and storing that grain for seven years. Well, seven years later, the famine hits, and it doesn't just hit Egypt. It actually hits that whole region and the nations around Egypt. Well, that means that the famine eventually affects Jacob and his brothers. Uh, I'm sorry, his sons. And so Jacob says to his sons, hey, I want you to go down to Egypt and get some food because we're, we're starving down here and we're hearing that Egypt has plenty of grain and they're selling it. So he sends his 10 older sons. Now, but now there's a 12th son and the 12th son is named Benjamin, but Jacob doesn't send the 12th son. The 12th son is now his favorite son. The 12th son is actually the only brother that's a full-blooded brother to Joseph because he, Benjamin, was born to that same favorite wife 
and then she died in childbirth. So now Benjamin, the youngest, is a favorite son, and, but he's younger. And he, so he sends the 10 older brothers, but keeps Benjamin at home. And so they all go down to buy grain. And when they get there uh, to buy grain, they end up, as fate would have it, right in, as God would have it, right in front of the vice regent. And so they, they have this face-to-face meeting with the vice regent of all of Egypt, and it's Joseph, their brother, but they don't recognize him. It's been about 20 years. You know, Jacob's in his 30s. They haven't seen him since he was 17. Plus, he's all decked out in Egyptian, and he's speaking Egyptian. And so they do not recognize who Joseph is, but Joseph recognizes them. And then Joseph treats them a little rough, as you might expect, and he starts putting them through the ringer and asking them all kinds of questions. Where where are you from? What are you doing here? I think you're spies. Well, no, we came here to buy for your family. Well, who is your family? Do you have a dad? Do you, you know, tell me all about your family. Is your dad still living? Are there any other brothers? And they're like, well, no, there are actually 12 of us at one time. One is no more. And then the youngest one stayed and the 10 of us are here to buy grain for the whole clan. And so he does this, and Joseph, he, he accuses them of being spies, throws them in jail. They're in jail three days. And then he lets them out, and he says, I'll tell you what. You go down and get your brother, the other brother, the Benjamin brother that you say you have, and when you bring him back, then I'll believe you. And so, but just so you know I mean business— I'm keeping one of you here as a hostage until you come back with that younger brother. And he chooses Simeon, and he throws Simeon in jail, and he lets the others go, and he gives them grain so they can feed their families, and they take off, and they do that. And they go back to Canaan. They tell their dad what happened, Jacob, and Jacob is distraught. He's like, I've already lost one son. Now I've lost two sons. Simeon's not with you. And they say, well, yeah, but he's going to give Simeon back if we go. No way are you taking Benjamin. I've already lost two sons. No way are you taking Benjamin down there. Not going to happen. When God's invisible, he's still there. Even though you can't see him, and he's working for you, he's working for others, and he's still there working his purposes then and now. God is only visible when we see his grace. But until we see his grace, he's not really visible to us. And we can't see his grace... Until we see truth, which leads us to justice, then we can appreciate God's grace. So let let me walk you through this. There's three ways for God to be visible in our life. We have to have enough, enough truth. We have to see enough truth to see justice. And when we see justice, then it makes it possible for us to see the full measure of God's grace in our life. And that's how this all plays out. We have to admit the truth. We have to see truth. And the truth is that we're all guilty. I want to point out something. When Joseph accused them of being spies, they're actually innocent. They weren't spies, right? And they're three days in jail. 
This is the exchange that happens in Genesis 42, beginning in verse 17, it says. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. But check this out, next verse. And then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when, we, when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen, and therefore this distress has come upon us. You see, they know they're innocent of being spies, that's why they're in prison, but they know they're really guilty, because this guy's been asking about the family, and it's reminded them, oh yeah, we sold, we did wrong to Joseph. And then in verse 23, it says this, they did not know, however, because they're saying this amongst themselves in Joseph's presence, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter in between them. Joseph's been using the interpreter. So they're talking about, oh man, you know, the reason this is all happened to us because what we were guilty. We're, we should have never done. He pleaded with us. Well, Joseph's hearing that. He understands them. They don't know that he can understand them. And so they, they head back. And, and here's the deal. With enough truth, we can see what justice means for us. God's not visible until we see his grace. We can't see his grace without truth. With enough truth, we can see what justice means for us. That's what's happening to them. They're three days in jail and they know we deserve way worse than this. We basically killed our brother. We sold him into slavery. We betrayed our own brother and sold him into slavery. So they know they're guilty, not of spying, of something worse than spying. And do you notice in the story that Joseph, they're like, he's like toying with his brothers like a cat toys with a mouse, right? I mean, he's putting them through the ringer, right? You catching that? So, because he could have just done this. They could have shown up for the grain, and Joseph could have said, you guys, hey, remember me? I'm Joseph, and now you're going to die. No, 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 death is too good for you. First, we're going to head over to slave block number one, and we're going to sell you and put you in slavery for about 14 years. And then after that, in case you start getting too comfortable, we were going to th I'm going to throw you into prison. We'll let you rot there for a few years. Then, I'll, if you survive, I'll let you go, and we're even Stephen. That, by the way would be straight-up justice. Joseph didn't do that. But on the other hand, straight-up grace would be forgiven. Joseph could have said, hey, guys, in Hebrew, it's me, Joseph. Hey, don't freak. Don't worry. I've forgiven you guys. Hey, it's okay. God had a plan. Come on here. Hugs for everybody. Come on. Huddle up. Go Browns. Yeah, we're all together in this. <laughs> but he doesn't do that either. You see, he could have done that. But if he would have done that, he would not have known whether they were sorry or what we call in the Bible repentant 
for what they had done. So he comes up with this plan where they have to go get the little brother who is now the current favorite of the dad, Jacob, and bring him down to Egypt. And then Joseph could see their interaction with Benjamin and figure out whether they were repentant for what they did to Joseph or not. And so he kind of toys with them. And he makes that happen to see, he tests them to see if they're repentant. All right, back to story time. Are you ready? I feel like you should be wearing pajamas and, you know, we should be sitting around a living room. Okay, back to the story. So after a while, they run out of food again. Joseph knew that would, could, would happen because he knew this famine's going seven years. These guys are thinking, we just get through this year, everything will be good. Well, they run out of food again. And then Jacob says, hey, guys, you need to go back down to Egypt and bring back Simeon, who's in jail there, but we need more food, or we're gonna, the whole clan's going to die. And they say, hey, Dad, we cannot go back down there without Benjamin. That, the man will kill us if we don't have Benjamin with us. He's accusing of us. He, Benjamin's the only way he'll think we're not spies. And then Jacob's like, why'd you tell him about Benjamin? Why'd you do that anyway? And they're like, hey, we didn't know. The man was just being mean to us. He started asking us all kinds of questions about our family. So we're just telling him the truth. How'd we know that he would end up saying, bring Benjamin back? We had no clue. And Jacob says, not doing it. Not doing it. Well, the famine continues and things get even more severe. And finally, Jacob relents. He says, okay. Take Benjamin. And so they head out. Ten brothers again. Simeon in prison. Joseph, they think no more. The ten brothers show up. Again, they're in front of the vice regent. They introduce, this is the younger brother that we were telling you about. They introduce him. And so everything's good. Simeon is then let out of prison. And then the Pharaoh sells them the grain they need, as much as they could carry, to save their families. But... They, Joseph actually puts on a dinner for them, still doesn't reveal himself, but he treats them very nicely, sends them on their way. But before they're sent off, he instructs his officials, hey, take my silver chalice and hide that in the mouth of the sack belonging to the youngest brother, Benjamin. And so they take off. The brothers are happy. Everything's good. All 11 of them are going back. They have as much food as they can carry. They're going to save their whole clan, their kids, all their family. Everything's great. And then they're overtaken by the Egyptian army. And the commander says, why have you repaid good with evil? You've stolen the the cup, the silver cup that belongs to the vice regent. And they say, no way. We would never do that. As a matter of fact, if you find that cup on any of us, you can kill the guy that has the cup and we'll all be your slaves because that is not true. So they search. They start with Reuben the older and they go all the way down to Benjamin Lass and pull out the cup. And the brothers are freaked. And they say, yeah, just, just take us all. And, and the, the captain of the guard, he says, no, no, we'll just take the one who's guilty. We'll just make him a slave. But they all go back to Joseph. And here's the key. 
all of a sudden these brothers, they don't know if Benjamin's guilty or not. What they know is, hey, we're, we're sticking with Benjamin. They all go back to Pharaoh, his vice regent. So they're all in front of Joseph again. And Joseph's like, hey, that's pretty serious stuff, but I'm just going to take the, the youngest one. He's going to be the slave. He stole the cup. He's the one that's guilty. You know, I'll just keep him. And then one of the brothers, not the oldest brother, Reuben, but actually brother number four, Judah. Judah steps up and he becomes the spokesman for the brothers. And he basically says, God has found out our guilt. Again, they're innocent, but he's saying God has found out our guilt. What's he talking about? What they did with Joseph. So here's what it says in the text. Judah said, what can we say, you know, they're in front of this second most powerful man in the world. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, and they're calling him Lord. We are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he, Joseph, said, Far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. And then in verse 33, he says, the sum of it. it says, now therefore, please let your servant remain. Judah saying, please let me remain instead of the lad, Benjamin. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. So basically, Judah steps up and he says, I'll take Ben's place. I'll take Benjamin's place. I'm guilty, I'll serve the time, let him go back to his father, he's the favorite, I'll step up and do this. And again, we need truth and grace. But if we're ever, if we're ever gonna understand grace, we need enough truth to see what true justice is in our life. And that's what's happened with Judah. He realizes, I deserve to be a slave. I sold my own brother into slavery. Let Benjamin go. He didn't have any part of that. I'll serve the time. And it's the same today, right? When it, God is visible when we see his grace. But we only see his grace when we see enough truth to understand what justice would mean for me and you. So, for example, when I'm having a bad day or things are going wrong, not the way I expected, and again, I have a, a very good life. God is blessed. But, you know, a lot of you will say, hey, how's it going, Kevin? And a lot of times I'll say, better than I deserve. When I say that, I don't mean that I've done something particularly wicked five minutes ago. That's not the point. You know, what I'm saying is, hey, 
God has blessed me, and so I'm always doing better than I deserve because I don't deserve to be blessed because I am a sinner who sinned against my own creator. And the punishment, the justice for that is separation from God forever. That's the right thing that should happen. But God in his grace, in his mercy, you see, God is only visible when we see his grace. But we have to see enough truth for us to see justice for ourselves before we can get the full impact of God's grace in our life. And so Joseph reveals himself. He forgives his brothers. He actually sends a bunch of carts of provisions with them down to Jacob and empty carts to bring the whole clan back to Egypt because Joseph knows there's a still a few more years of famine and you may not survive. Come up here where I can take care of you. And they settle in this one particular land of Egypt called Goshen, but they're safe because they were repentant and they saw the justice that they deserved and they received grace from Joseph. And it's the same way with us. God has told us through history that God would bless the whole world through Abraham and then through one of his sons, Isaac, and then through one of Isaac's sons, Jacob. And then through one of Jacob's sons, and we might think that would be Joseph, but it's not Joseph. It's Judah, the one who stepped up and offered himself as a sacrifice. Because we find out through the Bible, through the line of Judah is where the Messiah comes from. And the Messiah steps up in Jerusalem to be our substitute in order for us to be forgiven and reconciled back to our Father. But we have to come to Him in repentance. And that only happens when we see enough truth to understand what justice means for us as individuals. And then when we see that God is offering forgiveness, God becomes visible when we see the impact of his amazing grace. And so I don't know where you are this morning, but you've either come to a place where you have responded to God repentant. See, Jesus died for us. We can't earn forgiveness from God. It's a gift, and it's through Christ, who was our substitute on the cross, taking our punishment on himself. And so when we come to him in repentance, then if we just come in faith, if we have repentance, we can come in faith or belief or trust by simply in repentance, being sorry for what we've done and meaning it, and putting our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, trusting him alone for our salvation, knowing that we can't earn any part of it. That's what it means to be a Christian. So right now I'd like us to bow our heads and I, and I, I want, you know, three different responses, maybe from everybody. You might fall into a category. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. The he, everybody's heads are bowed. I'm looking around, but just to kind of see where we're at as a crowd, I'm not going to single anybody out. I'm just trying to help us process through the implications of this story in our lives. 
So first of all, with our heads bowed, if you know that you've come to Christ on his terms, that you, in a re- because of repentance, realizing that you had sorrow for your sin against God, and that has driven you to come to a point where you place your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your forgiveness because he served as your substitute. If you've become a Christian through faith at some point in your life before today, I'd like you to raise your hand. So if you've become a Christian, if you know you've crossed that line of faith, raise your hand. Thanks. Hands all over. All right, you can put them down. Or if you're thinking, wow, I've never really heard it exactly explained this way, or it's been reaffirmed. I have heard this before, but now I'm thinking about it. If you're, if you're like, no, I've never done that in repentance, come to Christ in faith, but I'm getting close. I'm not ready to do that now, but I'm ready to commit to hearing more truth, to coming back and hearing more of what God has to say in his word. So I can check this out a little more deeply. If that's you, I'd just like you to raise your hand and then just put it down. Let, let me see you. See you. See you. Just raise your hand. Yeah, I'm, I want to hear more. Put it down. Or the third group is, you know, Kevin, I, I don't need to hear any more, I don't think. I'm ready to put my faith in Christ now. If that's you, put your hand up and then write back down. I'm not going to embarrass you. just want to see you. Put your hand up and write back down. And for that last group, I want to lead you in a prayer. Only God and you know if you're sincere. That was the whole test Joseph did. Are they sincere? Only God knows. Make this your prayer sincerely, and you'll be a Christian, and God will forgive you forever. Father God, I understand that I have sinned against you like everyone else, and I deserve separation from you. My sin's that serious. If I'm honest with myself, I know that's right. And Father, that I can't earn your forgiveness, but you offer it as a gift. And I realize that Jesus came to be my substitute, that he would pay my penalty for sin so that I could be forgiven and I could be reinstated in a relationship with you. So God, I'm, I'm asking you, forgive me based on what Christ did. That's all I got. And help me to live like you want me to. You know, just help me as I try to follow you, because that shows that I'm serious, that I'm truly repentant. In Christ's name, amen.